0: Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, welcome back to the
1: Radically Loved podcast. Tessa is here with us for today's So is beja. She's drooling on me. That's my kitty, for those of you that can't see her. If you've never met her, she's made quite a few appearances on the show. Yeah. She's a little starlet, this one. She just wants to be on camera. You know, there's always (laughs) that one. So
0: last week was interesting. Uh, We had our first episode of season nine, and we've had some... Interesting feedback from everyone. And, you know, I think the most poignant theme that this brought up for me was the insidious nature of cancel culture. Mm. And I remember reading yeah. the definition of cancel culture being like a like a minefield designed to detonate in the face of human nature. Whoa, like, that can was, you say that again? Yeah, so cancel culture is like a minefield designed to detonate in the face of human nature.
1: That's intense. I mean, <laughs> that's what it feels like, right? It feels. She had to take a beat on that. Yeah. yeah. I need to absorb that for a moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it, continue. No, yeah. I, I, think, well, I think we're both having to really process that. It's been really interesting, actually, to see a couple of people that I know on this learning path to becoming better, I think we could all use a great humbling once in a while. Don't you agree?
1: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. I think the the I, the ego gets in the way. I've been listening to Alan Watts give lectures. Well, oh. I mean, the recordings of the lectures that he historically gave, right? And yeah. he talks so much about the ego. And so that's on my mind. And he talks about the ego from the perspective of it getting too big and historically each culture or species where the ego gets too big that culture or that species becomes extinct mm. so it's like <laughs> not to be fatalistic but it feels like you know that could be metaphorical too right like it does take a great humbling to remember that we are not separate that we are part of a system that we are part of a human family that
0: yeah absolutely we are Yeah. And I think that my big thing too is for a lot of people, I definitely do believe that there are certain, I mean, I will denounce any true evil and negativity in the world. I mean, I'm not saying that every single incident that is done is redeemable. You know, I'm just, I think that we're in a society that's so focused on the finality of making a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's clickbait and it's so easy for us to go into the state of negativity or going into uh, the hell storm that is social media because there isn't the face-to-face interaction with the person. I talk about this all the time. I feel like I'm pretty confident in saying that if people said the hateful things that they say to a person in their presence and to their face, I think that there would, if that was part of the requirement, oh, you're willing to write this hateful comment on somebody's feed, you have to be willing to say it to them in person, in the flesh, face to face. Like that should be their prerequisite. It's like, It's And if some people are really committed to their resolve and say, yes, I could do that, then fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Fortunately, we live in a country where there is free speech and we can speak our mind, but that doesn't mean that you can't have boundaries, right? Just as a person.
1: Yeah. I think being behind a screen too, is just so dehumanizing. We forget that the, the receiver of that comment is a human being with feelings. Yeah.
0: And rarely have we, or do we give ourselves the space to make amends. That's not really the focus is always somebody made a mistake. Let's cancel them. Let's throw the person away instead of saying, okay, where are the places that this person failed and where are the places where they're learning and actually trying to be better and have begun the steps to redemption, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that needs to be acknowledged for people that are willing to acknowledge it when they're ready and they're in the right place, right? There's so many nuanced factors to that. And I think one of the issues that I had with last week's episode was that, you know, it's very difficult to have a nuanced conversation in 40 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes. yeah, And especially such a heavy topic. and, And I think that we went into this topic very gently and lightly and i mean you could definitely hear my trepidation at times because it is such a sensitive topic but i'm glad that we did and i know that the conversation is an ongoing one and i hope that i've done my intention was to have and create a place where everybody feels welcome and i really hope that i provided that space for everybody and that people felt seen, heard, and understood and felt like sometimes situations are multifaceted and it's important for us to see a person as a whole. And that's it. That's all I can ask for, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's an important conversation. And for those of you that missed it, please go back and listen. <laughs> Yes, yeah. it's a good one. Okay, it's a brave one. It is. <laughs> so,
0: moving forward today, we have another very special guest, a dear friend of mine and a dear friend of the podcast. He's been on the podcast. I want to say, like, one of the most revisited <laughs> guests we've had. He's also done our Radically Loved Summit. He is one of the loveliest and probably one of the smartest individuals that I know. Today's guest is Jason Pfeiffer, and he's here to talk about his new book. He's going to talk to us about uh, the qualities that make successful people different, their adaptability to change. He lays down ways on how we can widen our bands to navigate the four phases of change, which he goes into depth. And I'll tell you, I've never, we had this conversation, it's pre-recorded. We had it a few, I want to say months ago, maybe it's been only a month and a half or so, but it has really changed my view to how I adapt to change. Mm-hmm. And you and I have, because you listened to the podcast soon after I recorded it and I, I feel that it did the same for you.
1: Oh yeah. Well, and I just, Jason's, the way that he approaches all of the work that he does, it's so easy to, he lays it out there and it's like, oh, I can I can understand that in a really practical way and I can figure out how to apply it to my life and to try these things that feel scary, like change feels scary, right? We talk about this all the time, It should change feels scary, but you're right. I think there's something about the way that Jason shows up and just shares these things that he finds so interesting with all of that enthusiasm that makes it feel like less scary mm-hmm, to just, mm-hmm. you know try yeah. to adapt he and he makes us feel he makes us feel brave yeah
0: you know yeah. i love it i think it's really great i'm really excited to share this conversation with all of you and i can't wait to hear what you guys all think of this conversation with jason pfeiffer Hey everyone, it's Rosie. It's hard to overstate how important magnesium is for all aspects of our health. Everyone now talks about how critical magnesium is for us. Dr. Hyman, Andrew Huberman, and all of the health industry authorities and doctors. There's a long list of symptoms and diseases that can be eased or even treated with magnesium. In fact, way back, magnesium was a critical element. Doctors use magnesium for all kinds of conditions from arrhythmia to constipation to preeclampsia and even seizures. For some reason now doctors use it as a last resort and put patients on high doses of magnesium if they're at risk of premature labor, seizure or other various conditions. Now I'm normally a big advocate of getting as many of our nutrients as we can from a well-balanced diet and it would be just perfect if we could all do that. But getting the amount of magnesium that you need just from food is a lot of work and it could also be extremely taxing for our agricultural system i read somewhere that if 10 years ago we needed to eat one orange now we would need to eat 10 to get the same amount of nutrients it is just simply impossible to eat the amount of food to get the minerals that we need Fortunately, Bioptimizers has the solution. Their Magnesium Breakthrough supplement is the only product in the market with all seven types of magnesium. And it's specifically formulated to reach every tissue in your body to provide maximum health benefits. Bioptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough gives you access to the full spectrum of magnesium, which can dramatically improve your overall health from reducing stress to improving sleep and boosting your energy levels. Right now, you can try Bioptimizers, Magnesium Breakthrough, and any other Bioptimizer product for 10% off. Just go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash radicallyloved. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com forward slash radicallyloved. And use the code love 10 to boost your intake of magnesium and start feeling better today. Don't wait to be deficient. Start taking the best magnesium and improve your well-being right now. Just go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash radically loved. Here we are. We've officially begun. Everybody knows. I mean, Jason, well, I feel like I get your updates because I'm on your newsletter, which by the way, if you're listening to this. Do yourself a favor, go to the info button, subscribe to Jason's newsletter and your life is going to change. Oh, thank you. I have been looking forward to having this conversation because I think from the moment that we first met, I really was such a huge fan and I'm not going to spend the first 10 minutes touting your horn. <laughs> 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 I mean,
2: it, does, it doesn't get old, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <You're> and like, <laughs> and, the, and the, feeling, the feeling is mutual. We talked and we were like, well, this is, this is going to be a long relationship. <laughs> no, It's just like totally. one of
1: those.
0: Tell me, I want to know, tell us about your book. I want to know all of the things. Tell me yeah. about the process of writing it. I'm always interested in how you concoct ideas and how you're able to make an idea that happens like this in your brain Mm -hmm. because you have many and you've got a lot of projects. You got a (laughs) plate full of uh, projects and children and And a wife. Yep. Tell us, how do you do this?
2: Yeah, it's funny because you said children. I was about to say two of them, but then you said and a wife. And I was like, well, not not two wives. (laughs) Uh, It's just like like the timing could have been very weird on that. So I will tell you, this all began with a realization. And that realization is, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, that if you listen to the questions that people ask you, what you realize is that people are actually telling you what they think your value is to them. And I became editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine in 2016. And... I started getting this question all the time whenever I would I would go on podcasts or I would speak at events. And that question was, what are the qualities of the most successful people? Like, what is the thing that you're seeing? And I realized, well, for, at first I was like, why are people asking me this question? And then I realized the questions are people telling you what they think your value is. And then I thought, oh, the value that I have is that I'm the pattern matcher to them. Like, I'm the guy who gets to talk to everyone. So therefore, I'm the guy who should be able to report back what the patterns are. So I thought, well, you know, the great thing about knowing what your value is to people is that all you have to do is fulfill it. Like, (laughs) you know, if you want to be valuable to people and you know what they want from you, well, then go make sure that you've got a way to deliver that value. So I thought, well, I really need an answer to this question. What is the thing that drives success? And so I spent a lot, I spent years thinking about it and talking to people. And what I came to realize was that the answer is adaptability. The most successful people are adaptable. They are the ones who are able to navigate through change in a way that trips other people up. And then the question was, okay, well, how are they doing that? Because adaptability doesn't seem to be something people are born with. It's a skill people can learn. And then the pandemic provided the answer because the pandemic was this crazy experiment. I mean, it was a lot of things, but it was a crazy experiment in which... Everybody went through the same change at the same time. And some people adapted really remarkably well to it. They built new businesses and careers and reinvented themselves. And other people were not able to do that. And I, and I wanted to know, well, what is the difference? And what I came to realize is that everybody goes through change in four phases. Panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. And the only difference is that the more adaptable people move through those phases faster. So that then became the mission, was understanding how people do that. And that's what the book is,
0: yeah. Oh, I'd love that. That is very concise. And I mean, you've positioned it in a way where it's aspirational to want to be able to go through these phases in a way that's going to serve that's going to serve us, right? That's going to serve our lives. And I intuit with your background, your knowledge that you've provided, a template or at least given us some different pathways that we can take to create those four phases of change?
2: Yeah, through studying what people big and small did and what lessons can we extract from them and marrying that to the history of innovation. I I kind of went all over the place. I'll give you one, let's start small with a story that I I just really love. So there's a woman named Lena. She has a wig shop in Baltimore and it's called Lena's Wigs. And it used to be, it was operated as she operated as a storefront. It's a storefront. You know what a storefront is. People walk in off the street, it's a storefront. And then the pandemic came along and she was unable to welcome people into the store anymore. And so she thought, well, how do I save my business? What do I do? And the thing that she came to was to realize or rather, the thing she came to was to try something that she had discarded in the past, which was the idea of appointment-only viewing, right? Appointment-only viewing, not a radical idea, not some crazy thing that got beamed down from you know, some supernatural force, like appointment-only people do it. But she had never wanted to do it because she thought too much friction. Why on earth would you add friction to your business? You want people to walk in and buy whenever it is that they want, but she had to do it. And so she moved to appointment only, and she discovered, to her wonderful surprise and delight, two things. Number one, sales and profit went up. Two, customers were happier. Why? Well, I will tell you why. Because Lena, prior to this, had been paying a person to greet the people who come in off the street. But the people who come in off the street are not actually people who buy wigs, right? Randos off the street don't buy wigs. Randos off the street look at wigs. and so. Lena was spending money to greet people who were not her customer. Meanwhile, her Mm -hmm. actual customer is somebody who's buying wigs for a private reason, for health or religious reasons. And they are very happy, thrilled really, to have that experience without a bunch of randos off the street, right? So in trying to operate this thing as a storefront, because she thought this is how it must be done. This is how it's always been done. This is how I run my shop. Because of that, she had in fact actually been creating a worse environment for the people who actually do buy her wigs. And she was spending money on people who weren't buying her wigs. And this change forced her to rethink everything about how she delivers value to people. And as a result, she now has happier customers who are thrilled by the private experience. And she doesn't have to spend money on people who don't. So I love this story because it really is an example of what I think we all must do. And that is to reconsider the impossible. To take these things that we said, these are outside of the boundaries that I have drawn for myself. These are bad ideas. These are impossible. These are too difficult. They're too complicated. And instead say, what if we try them? What if we shift it? What if I open the door a little bit and explored what is outside of the thing that I think works? You know, Rosie, I I think that we have, above all, a knowing problem, which Mm. is that we think we know too much. And that really limits our options.
0: Yeah. You know, I think about any entrepreneur that I know and... You know, I'll take Tori as an example. We have these conversations all the time. He started his business back in 95. Wow. And he's still, you know, does high-end leather accessories, belts, guitar straps, watches. And I've seen the evolution, the adaptation, the, you know, trying to go different pathways, add new things in, take things out, what works, what doesn't work. And it's just, it's been such an interesting experience because I've been with him during the phase of having the too much knowledge and having the, oh, that's not going to work. That never works. That never works. We've tried that before. It's just nobody will ever want to purchase a product like this. And just seeing what that closed, I don't want to say he's, he's not closed-minded, but that, that sort of narrow focused way of thinking can limit different mm-hmm. opportunities. And it's like, you don't know what you don't know, right? So how does one get out of that? Do you recognize that you're in that, that space?
2: Yeah. Have I ever told you the Gandhi test? What? No. Okay. We're going to do it. Oh. So, because I, I wondered this exact thing that you, you are asking me right now. It really, it started it started a little differently, which is that I was wondering, okay, if we are to know that change must happen, but we don't know what direction to go in, like, what is the right change? Is there a way to evaluate that? How do you predict the future, basically? And so I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I will track down someone who does forecasting for a living. And I called this company called Good Judgment they're a forecasting company. So, you know, if you're in plastics and you want to know what's going to happen in plastics in the next year or two, then good judgment will put that question out to ready for this. It's super forecasters. That's what it calls these people that they have identified through a long series of tests and whatever, who are just significantly better than the average person at looking at data and being able to forecast what's going to happen. They are the real life, you know, uh, people with uh, crystal balls. And so I said, I talked to this guy. his name is Warren Hatch, is the CEO of his company. He is a super forecaster himself. And I said, Warren, what makes a super forecaster? Why is somebody good at this? And he said, well, they have a whole bunch of qualities. They're really good pattern matchers. They don't get trapped in their own biases. But most important, and this is the reason I'm telling you right now, because this goes to your question. Most important, they are not overconfident, he said. Because you can test for overconfidence. And most people, if you are in a room and you say, raise your hand if you're overconfident, like nobody raises, I've literally done this, right? Nobody raises their hand. Nobody's like, I'm overconfident, right? Like, would you say you're overconfident? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah. But when you test for overconfidence, you actually discover that most people are overconfident. So of course, the next question has to be, What's the test? And he said, Well, look, it's, it's long, there's a lot of parts to it, but he's, he's like, I'll just give you one example, like one thing from the test. And then he says, What year was Gandhi born? So, Rosie, do you know what year Gandhi was born? Uh, okay, wait, but don't, don't, I mean, don't, don't, just give me a yes or no answer to start. Don't do I know?
0: No, I don't.
2: No, okay, you don't. Right. Okay, good. So, I didn't either. Anyone listening at home, playing along at home, don't Google, <laughs> defeats the purpose, right? Play along in, okay. in your head here. Okay. okay. So he says, What year your, your was Gandhi born? I said, I, I did the same thing that you did. Yeah. Uh, right. Know. Which was, which was, you don't know, your eyes widened. You're like, yeah. I don't know. And, you're, and you're embarrassed because you're like, I feel like I should know the answer to this. <laughs> I don't. And, uh, and so he says, That's fine. Doesn't matter. Here's what I want you to do I want you to tell me the earliest year that you think he was born and the latest year that you think he was born earliest and latest. Rosie, are you, are you bold enough to say this on the record? I promise I will tell you what my guess was. Okay. What was the earliest year you think he was born?
0: I think the earliest year he was born was 1913.
2: Okay. And what's the latest year he was born?
0: I think the latest year he was born was 1945.
2: Okay. All right. That's interesting. So, okay. So you said 1913 and 1945. So here's the answer. The answer is 1869. Uh, Yeah. So (laughs) I said, but don't feel bad because I said... The earliest was 1945 and the latest was 1955.
1: That's what I said. Oh, weird that we had that same.
2: So, so right. So, so very, so very similar, right? Very similar. And so, so he said, 1869, I did the same thing that you did. I laughed. I was embarrassed. And he said, (laughs) he said, that's okay. That's okay. The problem isn't that we didn't know the answer. The problem was our range of guess. So consider, I guessed a 10-year range. I just did the math. You guessed a 32-year range, all right? Neither of us have any idea when Gandhi was born. Or we've admitted. We don't have any idea. And yet, when forced to make a guess, we selected a very, very narrow range of years, right? And like, you're laughing because I did the same thing, right? It, so so the, problem, the problem is that oh we, are not, we are not being respectful of what we don't know. Like There is a, oh. there is a lack of awareness about what we don't know. Right. Because the way to answer this question, and this is what I said to Warren, I was like, I was like, the way to answer this question would have been, I should have said the earliest year that Gandhi was born was 1600. And the latest year was 1980. Right. And he said, yes, because I would have gotten the question right. Because I would have, I would have landed in the range, but I didn't do that. And I said, well, why didn't I do that, Warren? And he said, because you're overconfident. And, <laughs> right, and he said, and now next time you will know. And here's the phrase as soon as he said it, it really stuck with me. Now you'll know next time to widen your bands. That the problem is that we often approach problems with our bands too narrow, right? We do not consider the information that we don't know. And therefore, we make decisions based on probabilities that are incorrect. And then we compound it because. If I said, okay, well, if you've just guessed when Gandhi is born, so now you need to tell me uh, what television shows do Gandhi appear in. You would have said, well, I guess, okay, so it, between 1913, 1945, so maybe he was right. And like, and we would have, we would have just started to make worse and worse decisions <laughs> based on the narrow initial assessment that we had. And and this is just, it's just a perfect way to catch ourselves being unaware and not respectful of what we don't know. And instead believing we know more than we do, even when we acknowledge that we don't know. It's mm. wild. And so that's why I love the Gandhi test. And that that's a one way in which I think we need to catch ourselves and say, I'm going into a situation that I just don't know enough about. And therefore I need to be much more open. I need to widen my bands so that I'm willing to consider more information than perhaps I otherwise would have.
0: Here we are, my friends, back to fall, back to busy season. It was so nice this summer to take some time off, to regroup and yeah, really prepare myself for the upcoming season. If you're like me, you don't exactly have all the time in the world to spend on meal prep. That's why I've been using Splendid Spoon. It gives you the fuel you need to tackle everything on your plate with plant-based, ready-to-eat meals delivered right to your door. I have been living for that chocolate cherry smoothie, and their bowls are so fresh and so delicious. Splendid Spoon takes the work out of eating healthy for sure. You can choose from over 50 ready-to-eat meals shipped right to your door on repeat. From breakfast smoothies and lunch bowls to noodle dinners and light soups for those reset days. My favorite thing, of course, is that they are 100% plant-based, gluten-free, and GMO-free, with plenty of vegetables, legumes, healthy fats, whole grains, and spices from around the world. I mean, it is no secret that eating plant-based food can help benefit your energy, your sleep, digestion, complexion. With Splendid Spoon, it's easy to add more plant-based meals to your busy routine. So there is no excuse. So if you're like me and you want to fuel up for those busy days with Splendid Spoon, get started today and get $120 off of your first three boxes at splendidspoon.com forward slash loved. That's $120 off at splendidspoon.com forward slash loved. Splendidspoon.com forward slash loved. Or you can go to the show notes and click the link directly there. Oh, that is such a great solid way of examining our own internal, yeah, like limitations, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it it really is wild how we do limit ourselves so much. And I, I'm sure even for somebody... As overconfident as us, we have <laughs> we have ways of really, you know, limiting that. It's, it, that's it's so I'm so completely just awestruck right now I know. with that.
2: You know what's so funny is, is so I got off the phone with Warren after that. And I my mind was blown. And I was like, I need to do this with other people. I need to ask yeah. other people to get, and I will tell you. Everybody does the same thing. Everybody. They always pick some narrow range and they're never right. It's a crazy thing. But, why? but
0: why is it so... Have you... Has anybody given you a really wide range?
2: There was like one person who did. Otherwise, everyone picks between... Usually, you actually went a little wider than the average. Usually people pick between like 10 and 20 years.
0: Oh, that's good. Does it mean anything?
2: Maybe, maybe you're slightly less overconfident.
0: Okay, no, that's good. That's You'll take good. It. You'll take what was it. the what was yeah. the projector? The crystal ball people. What what did you go to them for?
2: Oh, I went to them for this exact question. So, what I wanted to know, what I wanted to know, this was this was for research in the book, where I I wanted to know particularly how do people decide what change to make, mm. and so I talked to I talked to for that chapter. I talked to Warren, and I talked to a woman named Katie Milkman, who is a a change researcher at Wharton. And they both offered all these other like really fantastic ways to think through how to evaluate what change you should make. I'll give you a few more of them. So one, both of them suggested to make pro-con lists, which of course is like old and boring, a pro-con list, right? Like I've heard about it a million times and I've never thought it's useful. And then Warren gave me the way to do a pro-con list that I'd never heard before that actually does make it useful. So here it is you don't just make one pro con list. What you do is you make a pro con list about, about whatever you're thinking about. We're like, should I do X or Y thing? Here's, here's the pros, here's the cons. Write that list, put it away, don't look at it, make another list a week later. Then put that one away, make another list a week later. Do this a couple times and then compare the lists. Because what you're really doing with these things is you're trying to filter out noise. Right? Wow. What are the things that consistently across time, despite circumstances, despite how you feel today or what somebody just said to you, what are the things that you're consistently valuing? Because they're going to change. And he said, he, both of them, in fact, said like, one of the hardest things in making a decision is that there is simply so much noise. And one of the things that we need to do is just filter that noise, find ways to filter that noise. And so the pro con list is a way to filter that noise by taking snapshots of what you value over time and then comparing it and looking for the patterns i mean i've caught myself doing this when like my wife and i have been shopping for homes for example i will one day i will really care about about like where the kids rooms are and then the next day i'll really care about the kind of outdoor space that we have but like a week later i might have completely forgotten about that stuff and and, and it, we have to drill down so so that was one and then another one that i that i really loved was um Katie's, you know, Katie's a professor. And she said, students will come to her all the time and they'll say, Hey, I'm really, really struggling to balance my workload or, you know, or whatever in this class. Do you have any advice? And she will say, well, have you asked friends of yours who are doing well, what they're doing? And they said, no. And she said, well, go do that. And the reason for that is because we have this odd thing where we, we tend to believe that people think like us and therefore that there's no reason to go ask people how they're doing things because, of course, they're just approaching it the same way that we are, where they're having the same problems. But no, 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 no. Actually, people take lots of different approaches. And one of the best methods of improving is simply copy and pasting other people's processes. So just go identify new ways of doing things, copy it and see what works. And don't think of it as this is the thing that you have to do. This is not the way that which you're going to change forever. Katie told me, you know, one of the great challenges that we give ourselves is that we try to think of everything in terms of permanence. I'm going to make this change and then that's mm-hmm. what I'm stuck with. Mm-hmm. And instead, treat everything like an experiment. Go and copy paste somebody else's tactics or try something else and think of it simply as an experiment. I'm going to try this on, I'm going to see if it works. And if it doesn't, I'm going to try something else and that's okay. Because the more that you do these kinds of things, the more that you give yourself these previews into what it would be like to make different changes, to explore different avenues. And that gives you more knowledge to make a decision. Look, there's no there's no perfect answer to a lot of the, you know, when we're going through a major change, there's no way to say this is the right decision. Economist Russ Roberts likes to call them wild problems, problems without any one specific answer. And um and so the best that we can do is we can kind of try on different solutions and be open, widen our bands, be open to the possibility that maybe, maybe the best answers are ones that we have left outside of our original formula.
0: Yeah. How change can be scary for a lot mm-hmm. of people. And I think that part of what I love, you speak to this and we, you and I have just had conversations outside of, of doing the podcasts, yeah. but how do we then make something we've not done before a little more malleable? How do we widen our bands, so to speak, in a way that feels sustainable and not Scary,
2: Yeah. So you should start now before you're facing that moment of change. And the reason for that is because you want to start to think of yourself as constantly absorbing and exploring new options, such that when you come to new opportunities or you come to moments of change... You can, one, feel more confident that in the past you have tried on new things, but also that you're now going to fall back upon skills, learnings, people that you've met and use them in ways that maybe you didn't originally intend. I have this philosophy that I call work your next job, for example. Work your next job goes like this. In front of you, Rosie, in front of me, in front of everyone listening right now, there are two sets of opportunities. There's opportunity set A, there's opportunity set B. Opportunity set A, is everything that's asked of you. So if you have a job, whatever your boss demands of you, whatever the things are that you're judged by, those are opportunity set A. Opportunity set B is everything that is available to you that nobody's asking you to do. And I posit to you that opportunity set B is always more important, infinitely more important. Because if you only focus on opportunity set A, which is important, got to do your job. But if you only focus on opportunity set A, you will only be qualified to do the thing you're already doing. But If you focus on opportunities that be, which could be anything, could be something at your job, it could be something outside. It could be you listen to podcasts and you think maybe I should start a podcast. And by doing that, you will simply start to expand how you think, how you approach and what it is that you do in ways that are like, I, I ran this little kind of thought experiment. I was like, okay, what happens if somebody starts a podcast, but they suck at podcasting? Totally possible. Lots of bad podcasts out there. Right? Not this one. This one's wonderful. No, no, Not this one. Not this one. But there are lots of bad podcasts out there. So let's say that somebody's like, you know what? I really like comedy podcasts. And they start a a comedy podcast. And guess what? (sighs) It's a bad podcast. Real bad. Not very Uh, comical. Not comical at all. The opposite. Well, so they start this podcast. And let's say that in starting this podcast, they also bought themselves a whole bunch of audio equipment. And they taught themselves how to edit their podcast, right? And because they did that, you know, I don't know, a couple months later, one of their friends who has a band reaches out and they're like, hey, we're trying to record a demo. Do you know how to record us and edit? And you're like, "Well, I, I think I can figure it out because I got kind of comfortable with it." And so you start to do that, and uh, the demo goes pretty well. And the band tells friends, and suddenly you got a whole bunch of people who are like calling you up, and they're like, "Hey, can we demo?" And so at this point, you need to start renting studio space, and people are coming in, and they're great. And, and and maybe you meet the studio owner, and then you're like, "You know what? I should start my own studio because this studio sucks, and I can do it better." And then suddenly, you've created a completely different career for yourself because you started a very crappy comedy podcast, and this is the. Thing that we need to be creating for ourselves these opportunities where we are learning and we're just opening doors that we didn't even know, we don't even know where the doors lead to. But I will tell you that the more doors that you can create, the more doors that you can fling open. And that is what enables you to then feel like when these major changes come, that you just have more available to you and that you have more at your disposal so that you can manage it and come out stronger.
0: I have one final question for you. And I want to do this again. And every time we can get you on the show, we're going to try and do that. (laughs) Out of the four phases of change, which one is your favorite?
2: Mm. Well, the one that feels the best is when you reach wouldn't go back. My favorite is panic because it's fascinating right. It's funny to see why it's funny to see panic and it's, and it's funny to see it in yourself. You know what I mean? Like it's funny to look back and be like, Oh man, I can't believe that I was scared of that because, because that thing that I did led to all these like amazing things. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story about panic that I that I love and will end on a weird note. Okay.
0: Great. I love okay. it.
2: So my belief is that the reason why people panic is because change, they equate change with loss, right? So change comes along and it feels like loss. So uh, because you, you you there was something that you were very familiar with, you're doing it and now suddenly you're not able to do it in the same way or you, it seems like you're not going to be able to. And so it feels like loss. And that's scary because gain is so much harder to see. You don't see gain right away in the way that you see loss. So What do you want to do? Well, you want to be your own super forecaster. You want to forecast into the future. You want to know what's coming next. And you're going to build off of what you have, similar to the way that I said that when you narrow your bands, you start to make, you start to kind of compound your bad decisions. So, similarly, when you equate change with loss, you then try to start extrapolating the loss. You say, well, because I'm going to lose this, I'm also going to lose that. And because I'm going to lose that, I'm going to lose that. And suddenly you start to feel like you're just like at an absolute tailspin. And What does this look like? Well, I'm sure people can find versions of that in themselves, but I will tell you this story. Turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s, the phonograph is introduced, the first record player. And this is revolutionary. This is a a wild new thing because it is the first time in all of human history that people can listen to music without a human being playing music in front of them. I mean, consider that. For all of human history, the only way you could listen to music is if there was a person playing an instrument in front of you. Now there's a machine that can do it. Wild. Revolutionary. And so consumers love this. You know who hates it?
0: Musicians.
2: Musicians hate it. Hate it. Because they see themselves being replaced. John Philip Sousa, leader of the resistance. He, famous musician of the time, he wrote all the marches that you know today, military marches, da 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 da, 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 da. John Philip Sousa, he writes this amazing... Piece in Appleton's magazine, uh, 1906, in which he argues for all the reasons why recorded music is gonna be terrible, it's gonna destroy us. He says, for example, that when you bring recorded music technology into the home, it will replace all forms of live music in the home. Because of course, why on earth would anybody perform live when there's a a machine that could do it for them? And because now there's no more live music in the home, mothers would no longer sing to their children, because again, why on earth would they do that? And because children grow up to imitate their mothers, the children will instead grow up to imitate the machines that are singing lullabies to them. And thus we will raise a generation of machine babies. That was the argument. And you can see where he's going with this, right? Right. Because he saw one change, he equates it with loss, he extrapolates the loss outward, and suddenly we're having really radical, insane things happen in our world. But instead, had he asked himself some simple questions like, and this is something that people should ask themselves when they're going through panic, like, what new thing am I doing right now? What habits, what new habits or skills are being built as a result? And then how could I put that to good use? Well, you would have run a very different scenario. You would have said, what are we doing right now? That's different. Well, um, people are listening to a machine instead of people. Okay. Uh, What habits are they building as a result? Well, they're listening to music whenever they like, and they're listening to whoever they like how could that be put to good use? Well, I could make a record myself, and I could distribute it so they could listen to my music whenever they like. And therefore, I don't have to tour around and only get their money and only get their attention when I can physically be in front of them. And when you start to think of it like that, you realize, oh my gosh, this actually is a massive opportunity for this industry. And indeed, it was because it created an ability to record music in Colorado today and have it be listened to in Korea tomorrow, and that's unbelievable. As it turns out, John Philip Sousa, because of his panic, was defending a system that was limiting his economic opportunity, and that is what we do when we panic. So instead, what we must do is widen our bands and consider the things that we do not know.
1: Oh.
0: Thank you so much. The name of the book, my friends, is called Build for Tomorrow, an Action Plan for Embracing Change, Adapting Fast, Key, and mm-hmm. Future Proofing Your Career. It's out September 6th of this year. And I have to say, I'm I'm so excited personally, and I'm a fan, obviously. Like I am just so excited for everybody to read this book. And I'm grateful that you took some time out of your busy schedule to come back on the show and impart some wisdom with us. So I'm I'm so grateful. It's always such an incredible conversation with you. Where can people go for more information?
2: Yeah. Well, Rosie, it's always a pleasure. I am never too busy for you. I am a big fan as well. So where can people find more information? You could just go to jasonfeifer.com. If you want to, you could go to slash book where you will find all sorts of ways to uh, get the book. Or you could go literally anywhere you find books. If you can think of a place that has books, that's a good place to go. Builds for tomorrow. I appreciate you.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie on Instagram, at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter, at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.